Let's turn to Romans chapter 9. We'll be, I set out to do two verses today, but I end up only doing one. But it's going to be kind of a two-part. We'll do verse 17. I was going to do 17 and 18, but I'm only going to touch on 17 today. And then probably 17 and 18 next week, to, because it's hard to separate those two verses. So Romans 9, 17. It says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us here to open your word and study your word, Lord. I just pray that, uh, that you edify your people here, and that your name is glorified, and I pray that you give me the words to speak, Father. Thank you again for, for revealing yourself to us through your word. And we're, we're so grateful. And we don't want to take this time for granted. So just uh, give us ears to hear, Lord, this morning. In the name of Christ. Amen. So just a way of review. Uh, let us remember our context here in Romans 9. Uh, the greater context of it is that Paul is proving that God is a covenant-keeping God. That he... Um, we'll see this 9, 10, and 11, chapters 9, 10, and 11, that God is a covenant-keeping God. He hasn't completely done away with Israel, but not everybody that was Israel was actually Israel. Not everybody that was of Israel was Israel. And he's proven this, and he's using some good examples in proving this through Abraham, through his direct descendants. And remember, Paul, in verse 11, makes a statement that, almost, that, that most wouldn't like to be made when he says, that for though the twins were not yet born and had done anything good or evil, in order that God's purpose according to His choice might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. He says that these two twins, these twins, before being born, still in the womb, God chose one and rejected the other before they had done any good or evil. He then goes on to say that God actually loved the one and hated the other in verse um, 13. And because He knows that you won't like that and argue that that's unjust. In verse 14, he declares that there's no injustice in God. He says, may it never be. Then he deals with the positive aspect of God having mercy on whom he will have mercy. And we're all okay with that, right? We're perfectly okay with God having mercy on whom he'll have mercy. We're all okay with that message. Even before we've done good or evil, we're okay with that. And that's what we dealt with last week in verses 15 and 16, God having mercy. But now he flips that coin over onto the other side and deals with the, the other side in our verses today, that God also hardens some. So he not only has mercy on whom he wills, but he also hardens whom he wills. So let's get into our text here. Now I have three points, but I'm only going to give you two of them up front. The third point, I want to be like a cliffhanger out there. Pay attention for it. The first point is God's sovereign power. The second point is God is God's chief end. So let's go into God's sovereign power. And before we jump right into the meat of this text, I want us to notice something that we probably would simply read over and not pay attention to. Notice it says in verse 17, For the Scriptures say to Pharaoh, what book of the Bible 
was written to Pharaoh? Or what portion of Scripture was written to Pharaoh? The answer to that is actually a little surprising because none of it was. None of it was written directly to Pharaoh. Moses didn't write an epistle to Pharaoh. There's no such thing as the epistle to the Egyptians. So what is Paul saying here? He's actually quoting from the Old Testament again. So actually let's go back there and look at this in Exodus chapter 9. Exodus 9.13 This is the writings of Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this cause I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Now, Paul obviously knew that there was no letter written to Pharaoh. He actually knew it better than we would know it. Paul, as a Pharisee, he knew his Old Testament to a level that probably you and I would probably never reach. So Paul knew what he was saying when he says the Scripture says to Pharaoh. He's saying it because he, he knew, and we also readily admit, that when God speaks, it's Scripture. When God speaks, it's Scripture. So the Scripture says to Pharaoh, and when, when this is said to Pharaoh, that's as good as Scripture. And this is why we, I think as a church in general, we would reject the idea of ongoing personal revelation from God. Or to say it more plainly, we reject the idea that God is speaking to you personally outside of Scripture. God doesn't speak to you some voice in your head or, or, or calls down from heaven, Jeremy, do this. For if He is still speaking, giving revelation, it should be recorded and added to the Bible. Paul here, though, is recognizing and almost matter-of-factly just says it, that when God speaks, it's Scripture. Divine revelation is Scripture. And that's what he's quoting here. That's what he's pointing us to here. He's, there's not a Scripture that was written to Pharaoh, but the very fact that Moses said what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh was, was Scripture. God tells Moses what to say, and Moses says it to Pharaoh. He doesn't write him a letter, but he speaks to him. Now later on, obviously, it's written in Scripture. But when it happened, it was just oral proclamation. So this oral pro proclamation from Moses because it was the words of God and later penned as Scripture, is the same as Scripture. So that's why Paul said, for it says in the Scriptures, to Pharaoh. So now that I've cleared that up a little bit, let's move forward a little more into the, the, those deep, murky waters here. What is said to Pharaoh through the mouth, mouth of Moses, but from God, is the meat of the message. So let's look at this. In, in verse 16 here, uh, Exodus 9. 
It says, but indeed, for this cause I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Probably every... If y'all have any other Bible version, it reads different than what mine does. NASB says, for this cause I have allowed you to remain. I want to point out something here, and I think it's very important, that that is softened language that is not even there. The NASB is the only translation that I saw that actually has it this way. That I have allowed you to remain. Obviously, Paul didn't think it was simply to allow to remain. As though God was passive in raising him up. I think the translation of the NASB do a disservice to the text in translating in this way. And this, this is why. Paul actually interprets this and translates it for us into the Greek, into the New Testament. So Paul's already translated it for us and interpreted it for us, and he keeps the meaning of the Hebrew. What Paul uses in Romans 9 is the correct translation of the text. What's also interesting is that Paul, when you go through Paul's writings, oftentimes he quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. So he just quotes the Septuagint and, and into the Greek New Testament. It's much easier that way, right? Well, in this verse, he doesn't quote the Septuagint. He translates the Hebrew into the Greek for us. Paul, in Romans 9, uses the word exegairo, which is not in the Septuagint, but better describes the raising up. I know that, obviously, that Greek word, that's even hard for me to say. I said it a hundred times this week to myself, because I... You want to read exegyro, but that's not how the Greek goes. But anyways, the, the Greek word means nothing to us right now, but let's get a little bit into the, the, the grammatical here. This word in Romans 9, exegyro, is a, is a verb. We all know what a verb is, right? It's an action. It's an action. We know this. But let's get a little bit deeper. It's actually a first-person singular verb, which is not so familiar with us, because when we typically think of first-person singular, we think of pronouns. However, here in the Greek, it's a verb. So it means, this is God, this is what Paul translates it to mean. I am the one doing this. Not, I just allowed this to happen. I just allowed you to remain, but I am the one doing this. Now let's take a little step forward with this word here. It's actually an aorist, active, indicative. Now, I sound pretty smart saying that stuff, don't I? But it does. <laughs> That's just what it is. Indicative just means it's a statement of a fact. So it's a fact that I am the one doing this. That's what God's saying. I am the one that raised up Pharaoh. It's a fact that I am the one doing this. And it's active. Which clearly means he's active in doing it. It's a fact that I am active in doing this. That's, what, that's how you could actually translate it. It's a fact that I'm actually the one doing this. And I'm active in it. And aorist means that it's past tense, to put it simple for us. So most translators actually have this correct when it says, I have raised you up. Past tense. I have raised you up. I was the one doing it. I was active in it. I have raised you up. Or I did raise you up. The I here being God, obviously. God was active in raising up Pharaoh. It wasn't passive like the NASB translates Exodus 9 with, I have allowed you. That's not the idea behind it. It's that God 
in fact, was the one who actively raised up Pharaoh. And Paul actually gives us a picture of that in our coming verses too when he says he has, the potter has power over the clay. The very sense that Paul, that Paul would use that picture shows us pottery doesn't make itself. The potter must be active in making the pottery or the pottery becomes nothing but clay. But God is active in it. I am the one doing this. I am actively the one who have raised you up, Pharaoh. Let's look a little bit more at this word, though, because it's not, pop, not a popular word in the Greek. But I think this will give us a little bit more of the idea behind it. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Once in Romans 9 and once in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this is, this is the word, I have raised you up in the English. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. It says, verse 14, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. You see the same language as Romans 9 there, right? God raised up Pharaoh... And he was the one that did it. I am the one who was actively raised up Pharaoh. And right here it says, but he will raise us up through his power. So where did God raise up the Lord from? The grave. And where will God raise us up from? The grave. Now these things, these, even though it sounds similar, these things don't happen in the same way in this sense. When it says God raised up the Lord, we can't be so rigid as to say, the Father raised him up from the grave and asked that. Because that's what this verse is showing us, right? That the Father raised up the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But we can't be so rigid and just say, well, that's that. The Father raised up the Lord. And here's why. Jesus also raised himself from the grave. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He says, no man has, has taken it. Talking about his life. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. So Jesus raised himself from the grave. The Father raised him from the grave. And if we remember from Romans chapter 8, the Spirit rose Jesus from the grave. In verse 11 of Romans 8 it says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. So, like I said, we can't be so rigid just to go to this one verse. And this, sometimes people get in, in trouble like this. They go to one verse and they say, well, it teaches this. This one verse teaches that. Well, we need to also bring it in with all the other verses and, and make it fit together. Not just take one verse and pull it out and say that. So, in other words, God raised God from the dead. He raised himself from the grave. But when it comes to us... We take no part in raising ourselves from the grave. So Jesus rose himself from the grave, even though it says that God raised the Lord from the grave. But we take no part in ourselves being raised from the grave. And that word exegyro is actually, see I did it right there, is used in the second phrase of this verse. We are dead. Now this isn't talking about spiritual death. This is talking about our future resurrection. We are dead. Our bodies are in the grave. We can do nothing to bring our bodies out of the grave. God must do it. 
God must raise us from the grave. It's all the work and power of God to raise us from the dead. And this is actually the same idea that's used in Romans 9 of God raising up Pharaoh. It was all the power and work of God in raising up Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't raise up himself, but God raised him up. Mounts' Greek dictionary gives a definition of this word in Romans 9.17 as to raise up into existence. God raised Pharaoh up into existence to display his power. Sort of like Proverbs 16.4, right? Where it says the Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Let me also mention this. The word used in Romans 9 that is also used in 1 Corinthians 6. It's used in 1 Corinthians 6 as a raising up unto salvation. It's used in Romans 9 as a raising up unto damnation. And both times, it's God doing the raising up. And this is clearly the idea Paul is promoting from verse 11. When he gives us the example of Jacob and Esau. God is not only capable, but also willing to raise one up to salvation and another to damnation. That's what we see in Romans 9-11. Hence the objection, right? That God is unjust. If you soften the language of Romans 9 to mean that God just looked through time to see their actions or their faith, you don't get this objection. There's no objection then. There's no objection that God is unjust if He simply just looked through time and saw that you would believe or that you would obey Him. However, when you see that God raises one up into existence to destroy him, to display his power, the objection will readily be raised against your doctrine. And Paul anticipates that. And this is what Paul clearly says here. And I know it's a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow as fallen men and women. But that's what Paul is clearly teaching us here. He, he literally just says it. God raised him up. So let's look back at this verse in Romans 9. For the scripture says to Moses, for this very purpose, for this very purpose, he raised him up. So he didn't, it, it's not just that God is actively the one raising up Pharaoh, but there was a purpose behind raising up Pharaoh for this very purpose. And what was that purpose? To display or show his power. So God raising him up was to do something else, and that was to display his power. And how did God display his power in him? By destroying the most powerful man on earth at that time. By hardening his heart. So he wouldn't let the Israelites go. We'll see that next week. God hardened his heart so he wouldn't let the Israelites go. Then, by sending forth plagues. And it, it, does that make sense to us? God hardened his heart so he wouldn't let the people go. Then God sends forth plagues because he wouldn't let the people go. And lastly, killing the firstborn. Who was the rightful heir to the throne? God, God hardened his heart, raised him up into, this, into, into existence, into this place, and hardened his heart so he wouldn't let the people go, sent forth plagues on him, kills his son, And then he lets the people go. And then what happened? God hardened his heart again to go after the people. Let's actually turn there so you don't think I'm speaking out of context. Exodus 14. 
Exodus 14 and verse 4. I'm going to jump around a few verses in this chapter here, but verse 4. Now, the people have been let go. They've, they've left Israel, uh, Egypt. And they're out with God leading, leading them, right? With the pillar of fire. In chapter 14, verse 4, this is God. He says, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Look down at verse 13. Same chapter. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart to go after the people. Verse 13. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which we, He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And then go down to verse 23. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, just as God said they would. And all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. Now y'all y'all know this picture, right? Moses takes them into the, into the Red Sea, right? It's part of he's walking them through that sea. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart to go after them and goes into the sea after them. And that's where we're at right here into the midst of the sea and it came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion how God brings somebody into confusion that's not right right and he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty so the Egyptians said let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Israelites against the Egyptians then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea and the waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. That's hard. All the Egyptians, and Paul says this, were baptized. They were. They were baptized. They were immersed into the sea and drowned. And this is the very purpose for which God raised up Pharaoh. It wasn't to be nice and loving to him. It wasn't what they said, the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. That doesn't exist. It wasn't to, to be nice and loving to him, but it was to harden his heart and destroy him in public so that God's power was shown to the people. This is the purpose for which God said he raised up Pharaoh. And I'm not even really giving commentary on that. That's just what the word says. If you don't like that, there's a place called a throne of grace where we should go. God was the one who actively raised up Pharaoh for the very purpose of destroying him to display his power. And I know it's hard, but it's here in the text. 
We can struggle with it. We can dislike it. But it's here, and we must deal with it, right? And let me say that Pharaoh isn't a lone example of this either. It wasn't just like Paul had to cherry pick one guy out of the, the old covenant. He wasn't, he wasn't the only example of this. Judas was raised up. What for? To, de- to betray the Lord, to pretty much sell him for 30 pieces of silver and kill himself. That was all prophesied in the Old Testament that Judas was going to do that. He was going to betray the Lord and sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Then because he felt remorse about doing that, he wanted to give the silver back and they bought the, what was called the, the potter's field with it, the field of blood. All prophesied in the Old Testament that Judas was going to do it. Nebuchadnezzar. Another example. The most powerful man on earth. We don't, we don't, I don't think we really get this today because who's the most powerful man on earth? Joe Biden? <laughs> but <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar at the time, the most powerful man on earth. And what does God do with him? He raised him up as well to be brought to insanity. And he was out on the field. What, what could Nebuchadnezzar did? Nothing. He couldn't make himself uncrazy. God made him crazy. But then it's the, some of the greatest thing. Then he showed him grace. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar could have never been uncrazy. <laughs> he would have stayed that way forever unless God changed him. And God did. And listen to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the hosts of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What hast thou done? The most powerful man on earth, God humbles him. Sends him out into the wilderness, eating grass. Changes him, shows him grace, and that's his testimony. That should be our testimony too. Because believe it or not, before Christ you were crazy. <laughs> and also the Assyrians. There's another example in Isaiah 10. God raised him up to punish the Israelites, only to be destroyed by God as well. How about Satan? Hmm. To quote Luther, the devil is God's devil. Or Calvin here. From the, listen to this. This is very strong. From the first chapter of Job, we learn that Satan appears in the presence of God to receive his orders, just as do the angels who obey spontaneously. The manner and the end are different, but still the fact is that he cannot attempt anything without the will of God. But though afterwards his power to afflict the saints seems to be only a bare permission, yet as the sentiment is true, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. As it has pleased the Lord, so it has been done. We infer that God was the author of the trial of which Satan and wicked robbers were merely the instruments. We have more preachers like that today. And obviously we can display others in Scripture that that is true of. 
to say, like I said multiple times last week, God does what He wants. He has mercy on some, and He hardens others. It's on Him. It's His will. He does what He wants. Now, I had a bunch of quotes again in this sermon, but I also have one quote to, to, to reinforce why I have so many quotes, and it's from Spurgeon right here. And Spurgeon says, He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. He who does not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. So here's another quote from Gill. This is John Gill on Pharaoh. It says, God ordained and appointed him from eternity by certain means to this end, that he made him to exist in time or brought him into being, that he raised him to the throne, promoted him to that high honor and dignity, that he preserved him and did not cut him off as of yet, that he strengthened and hardened his heart, irritated, provoked, and stirred him up against the people, his people Israel, and suffered him to go all the lengths he did in his obstinacy and rebellion, all which was done that I might show my power in you. Did you hear that? Made him exist in time, brought him into being, raised him to the throne, promoted him to that seat, preserved him, then hardened him and destroyed him. That's what God did with Pharaoh to display his power. And to go to our next point here, so that his name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. So he raised him up to destroy him, to display his power so that his name might be displayed in all the earth. The second point, well the first point was God's sovereign power. The second point is God is God's chief end. If this section of Romans 9 doesn't clearly display this to us, I'm not sure what we're reading. But let's develop this a little bit more. And this is a great doctrine. This is a great comforting doctrine. But it's one that many have a problem with. They say it's selfish. It's selfish for God to do everything for himself. It's not loving for God to act like this. But let me ask you something. What is an idolatry? Idolatry simply is placing anything above God or before God. So let me display the sin of many within evangelicalism. They say God does everything he does for you. They say, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, the only thing on his mind was you. These are idolatrous statements. And they're blasphemous. That would be attributing sin to God. If he placed you before himself, that's idolatry. We're commanded, nothing goes before the Lord. He does everything he does for himself. If you place, he places you above himself, it's idolatry. And he does everything for himself. God in our text here, see, and this, this text actually proves this so well. That in the text here, he literally raises up a man in great power to destroy him. To display his power and make his name proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So God raised up Pharaoh to do these things that his name would go for. God's chief end is himself. So let's see some of this from Scripture. Uh, turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 16. It says, 
Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make sure I'm in the right Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Can you look in the mirror and say that? Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. And I also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, they, these are the people of the Lord. Yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name. God says, I have concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sights. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God does all of that for his own name's sake. That's what he says. He's doing this for his name's sake. Not yours. Not mine. Not Israel. Not the churches. But for his own name's sake. That's what he's doing that for he does it for himself. There's actually another portion of scripture that's very similar to this. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3. Ephesians 1.3. It says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, I want you to recognize something when you read through this text, the, the, the personal pronouns for God here. It's, it's that we should be blameless before Him. It says, in love He predestined us to as sons, or predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intentions of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of, trust, of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things upon the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been, been predestined according to the purpose, to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. I'll, I'll keep going a couple more verses. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, but you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as an inheritance, as our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. You see that whole thing right there? It was all about God. He chose us in Him from before the foundation of the world. In love He predestined us. In Him. For Him. For His glory. According to the kind intention of His will. Who works all things after the counsel of His own will. It's all about God. And both of these passages are speaking about the work of salvation. And they're both very clearly by God, through God, for God, and to God. He... It's all about Him and for Him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Or to say like Paul says in, in Romans 11.36, he says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Can you say amen to that? If you can't say amen, you better say ouch. Now I want us to notice in these texts though, they include salvation, but they deal with all the realms of men. It wasn't just salvation. It, it deals with all the realms of men. Because it says, He works all things after the counsel of His own will. All things. Not just salvation. God is in control of everything, and He works it all to, to the specific end that He wills. To quote R.C., if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then ladies and gentlemen, there is not the slightest confidence you can have that any promise that God has ever made about the future will come to pass. In other words, there's not a maverick molecule in all the universe. You ever think about that? Anybody in here love like astronomy? Not astrology, astronomy. <laughs> You ever go out at night and see all the stars and think every single one of them is controlled by God, created by Him, and held in place by Him. Orion's belt is still a belt because of Him. The Big Dipper that we can look up and see in the sky, it's only a Big Dipper and it stays a Big Dipper because of God. He holds it on in place. And then you can go even further to some other galaxies, right? Isn't that amazing we can look past our galaxy? But we can see these other galaxies, right? And God holds them all in place. And even to the furthest reaches of our universe, it's all held in place by God. He is sovereign. God is in control of it all. Places man has never even seen before are held in place by God. We can also see this on earth. Well, kind of. We can't really see it. There's places in the ocean that man can't even go to that we haven't even seen. Yet there's fish swimming down in there that God takes care of. That He controls. They're all there for Him. 
He's in control of it all. And the chief end of it all is the glorification of Himself and the proclamation of His name throughout the horde. That's an amazing truth. And I'd, I actually urge you to study this out more for yourself, that God does all things for Himself, for His own namesake. You could probably just stick in the search thing, His namesake, or my own namesake, and you'll see all tons of verses that God does for His own namesake. And we, I think we clearly saw that in the text that we looked at. Paul is clearly and will continue to show us this from Romans 9, as we'll see. Hence why he's called the potter. So now to my third point. The first point was God's sovereign power. The second point is God is God's chief end. The third point is God raises up His Son so that His name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now, I use the same language as Romans 9 there, but I do not mean that he brings him into existence like he did Pharaoh. God raises up Pharaoh, he brings him into existence to display his power, but he didn't bring his son into existence. The son has always existed. So let's go back to the beginning and see this. And I'm just going to quote verses from here. We'll be turning all over the place if, I, if we turned all of them. Remember right, before, right after the fall, of man in Genesis. Right after the fall. God, we can see God starting to, to raise up a son. Promise of raising up a son. In Genesis 3.15 it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's from the very beginning. God promised to send forth his son. He was going to raise up his son. And his son was going to destroy the serpent. And save fallen man. Then you go further in history and God tells Abraham that he'll have a seed. And through that seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we know from Galatians that Paul tells us that Jesus was that seed. That it wasn't his son, Isaac. It was Jesus. And that's through, through that seed is through how all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then you go further in history and you see Jacob, who's Israel, Prophesy about the one who would rule. In Genesis 49.10 it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh there is talking about Christ. It was a prophecy about Christ who hadn't come yet, but God is going to raise up his son. Then you go to Moses, and he prophesies about the prophet to come, which is Jesus, not, not Muhammad. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Talking about Jesus. We can go further to David and his prophecy of the coming one in Psalm 110, 1. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until thine, I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. It's talking about Jesus. David. Or Psalm 22. Y'all familiar with Psalm 22? That Jesus quotes it on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he was doing is he was quoting that to tell the people around, this is happening. The crucifixion that was prophesied in Psalm 22, written by David, is happening in your midst right now. If you have a pocket Torah, turn to it and read it. God is raising up His Son. And we see in... Isaiah 
saw this in one of our favorite Christmas verses, right? Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will, be, will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And we can see many more, more verses. We can spend all day looking at these old covenant verses that, that speak of God raising up His Son. He's going to send forth His Son. He promised it right after the fall of man to Adam. And they say there's about, I think the numbers, I don't know if it's correct or not because I haven't counted them, but they say I think it's like 452 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Which would be literally impossible for Him to fulfill all of those unless He was God. So now to bring it to our text, Pharaoh could have never destroyed Israel. No nation could have destroyed Israel. Israel was the nation that the Messiah was to come through. And nothing in all of existence could have prevented it. If there was, if there was nuclear bombs back when Pharaoh was ruler, he could not have dropped a nuclear bomb on the nation of Israel and destroyed them. God promised a son from Genesis chapter 3. And he provided a son. And he raised up his son through Israel. That's why Israel was kept as a nation for that, that, that period of time. So the Messiah would come through. And he raised up his son through it. As Zacharias prophesies in Luke 1, 68 and 69, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Zacharias sounded like a Calvinist. Accomplished salvation, accomplished redemption. Christ was sent forth to be born of a virgin, which is another prophecy. A root out of dry ground in Isaiah 53. He was to be a root out of dry ground. He was going to be born of a virgin. He was sent. He was sent. Not simply as a lawgiver, but as a law keeper. He kept the law perfectly. The only man to do so. And as Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 prophesy about, he was crucified in the place of his people. He was crushed under the mighty hand of God Almighty for sin. And now we know that's not the end of the story because we already read 1 Corinthians 6.14 that God raised him up from the, from the grave. He was literally raised up for this purpose that the name of God would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Pharaoh was raised up to destruction and it has been and is still being proclaimed throughout the whole earth. We actually make movies about this. We make cartoons for the children of Pharaoh chasing after the Israelites and being destroyed. It's been proclaimed, it's being proclaimed throughout the whole earth that Pharaoh was raised up to destruction, but the greater Jesus Christ was raised up for salvation, and it has been and is still being proclaimed throughout the whole earth by us. Brethren, do you see that this is God's chief end? His raising up of individuals is for His purpose. It's for His purpose whether that be for salvation or damnation. And He raised up His Son for the salvation of many. So let me close with, with two last verses and thoughts. 
Actually, that's, I'm going to make us turn to him. Revelation 13. I, I guess I can't make you turn to it, but please turn to Revelation 13. Verse 8. Thirteen eight, Revelation thirteen eight, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone, this is talking about the beast, not talking about Christ. Everyone whose name was not has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now, the KJV, which happens to be my favorite version, but it actually translates this, I think, better. It says the the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's literally what it says. If you look at the Greek, that's actually literally how it says it. It's the, the book of life of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Not the book of life from the foundation of the world, but the, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Listen to uh, John Gill again. And he may be said to be slain from the foundation of the world. In the decree and purpose of God by which he was set forth, or foreappointed to be the propitiation for sin, and was foreordained before the foundation of the world to redeem his people by his blood. This was not some afterthought of God. God didn't create man, and then when Adam sinned, he's like, oh no, what must we do? Christ was decreed to be the lamb before time began. And lastly, go back to Acts 4. Acts writing he says for truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus whom thou didst anoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur those men did what God predestined to occur or what he decreed is what we could say. What he decreed that those men do, that's exactly what they did. This is God ordaining or orchestrating things according to his will and using men to do so. Let me close with John Calvin again. It says, the sum of the whole is this. Since the will of God is said to be the cause of all things, all the counsels and actions of men must be held to be governed by his providence, so that he not only exerts his power in the elect who are guided by the Holy Spirit, but also forces the reprobate to do him service. Can we say amen? Or ouch. <laughs> God does what He wants. 
Even raising up men to salvation, or damnation. Even it's also raising up men to salvation. God does what He wants. It's hard to swallow, but to quote Paul, who are you to reply against God? So let me summarize this here. God raised up, brought Pharaoh into existence and to the throne to destroy him and display his power. Whether that sounds unjust to you or not, Paul already stated there's no injustice with God. He did this that his name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, and it was, and it still is. Yet he also raised up his son and crushed him in place of God's elect, that his name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And let's praise God for both of them. That's where these doctrines should lead us, to worship. Not argue against God or argue with one another, but to worship God who is sovereign over all. Amen? Let's move into our application here. Our call to faith and repentance to, as always, to the, to the unbeliever here first. Not that y'all are more important. <laughs> I know today to you is no different than yesterday, right? As an unbeliever today is no different than yesterday. But it actually is. You think it's the same, but God has you here today to hear a message. One that has been displayed to you. And if you sit under this message today and die and go to hell, you definitely won't be able to say, I had no clue. I didn't know. You sat in service on this date and listened to the message preached. There will be no excuses on Judgment Day. You come here today and you know that you're a sinner. You know that you have violated God's will and God's law. And you say, I've never even read God's law. But God's given you a conscience to void that excuse. You know when you've done wrong and broken God's law, and that's called sin. Sin is a transgression of the law, and sin deserves punishment. Isn't it amazing? There's only one thing that comes from sin. It's punishment. That's it. That's the only thing sin earns you is punishment. It says the wages of sin is death. And you've earned it eternally by your sin. Yet as was preached, God raised up His Son, a law keeper, in place of His people. Jesus kept the law. He never violated God's law. He never sinned. He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus kept the law for His people, and though their sins have earned death, He took that death upon Himself. The very sins I committed that earned me death, Christ took them. Which is true forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't making you pay for your sins, but paying for them Himself. He was risen and sits at the right hand of the Father right now. So He is the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. It's one thing that we, we should, about this season we're about to step into, which I'm, I'm in the season already, but people talk about baby Jesus. Well, He didn't stay a baby. He was a baby, but he grew up and he, he kept God's law. And it was crushed. That baby Jesus grew up, kept God's law, and was crushed. The wrath of the Father poured out upon him for sin. And as we already saw, and he was raised from the grave three days later. 
was seen of over 500 people and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that's what you must believe in order to be forgiven. I plead with you this morning. Don't go another day without this forgiveness. Repent of your sins and look to Christ as your law keeper and justifier. That's the only way you'll stand just before God on judgment day is if you're in Christ. So now to the believers. Do we really, this is our call to faith and repentance, so do we really believe Romans 9? Do you believe that God actually raised up Pharaoh? He was actively raised up Pharaoh to destroy him to display his power. That's what the text says. If so, also believe this, that God raised you up for salvation, believer. Paul says, he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb. Paul wasn't saved from the mother's womb, right? We know that. He was out killing Christians. But God set him apart even from the mother's womb. God brought you into existence to glorify His name in salvation. That's why you're here. Do we believe this? And I know a lot of times you may think that God is passive in this or that God brought me into existence simply to save me and that's the end of it. But it goes further than that. Just like we saw in Ezekiel 36. He will cause you to obey Him. Not simply believe Him. You will believe Him. But He will cause you to obey Him. So your life should be a testimony of the work of God because you were raised up for this purpose. He brought you into existence for this purpose. It says in Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So you're created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You ought to be doing good works. You're created for this purpose. Not simply to be justified and then go about your life like nothing happened. If you think that's justification, I think you're missing the point. You're missing something. If it's just, I mean, I already did that. I was justified 10 years ago. Nothing in my life is different. I'm not doing anything apart from coming to church on Sundays and every other Wednesday. Nothing else is different, but I'm justified before God. God raised you up to obey Him and to serve others for His glory. I want you to stop for a moment and ask yourself, what are you doing? That's not me. I'm not looking at your life and saying, what are you doing? Look at your own life. What are you doing? Are you so focused on yourself or your work or your kids or your family or your pets that working for God is taking a back seat? If so, that's called idolatry. And don't be surprised if God takes it out of your life. Because God will not let His people be idolaters. Such were some of you. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, we didn't look at that portion, but such were some of you. You're not that anymore. You're not an idolater. So let's repent of it and get to work for the Lord, which takes me to the, the last point of application here, the call to war. Now I think our call to war is clear here. God raised you up, brought you into existence for salvation and unto good works that His name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That's what He raised you up for. That's our mission. And we say the co great co-mission, that's our mission, right? Is to go up and proclaim His name throughout the whole earth. It's not an option for the believer. It's not one of, uh, you could do this if you wanted to do this, 
well, that's for the pastor, that's for the evangelist. No, that's for everybody. God raised you up for this purpose, to proclaim His name throughout the whole earth. And actually, this comes almost naturally, I should probably say supernaturally, to the, to the believer, right? When the Lord saves us, do we not go tell everyone we know? As if they never heard the message before? Did y'all do that when the Lord saved you? Go, oh, yeah, you, ever, you ever heard this before? Yes, I heard it before. They say that in church all the time. Get away from me. But it's changed your life. No, it doesn't. We get so zealous immediately that we tell everybody, the Lord saved me. And they reject us. And they reject us some more. And then we get beat down and then we think we're alone. And then we start to think maybe it's not true after all. Maybe we start to have doubts. Nobody else is believing it. I take this message to everybody else and they reject me. Well, keep pressing on, brethren. Jesus said they'd hate us. But it's not necessarily because of you, but because of Him. Keep going forth with this message of salvation. Be a good soldier of the Lord, for the Lord. He has equipped us with the armor and the weapon to fight this battle. Don't worry so much about someone disliking you. Now, I say this to also say... Do it in the right attitude. Don't let some person dislike you because you were a jerk to them. People are going to dislike you. It's going to happen. It'll happen anyways. Even if you don't preach the gospel to somebody, people are still going to dislike you. People make up reasons to dislike people. We aren't brought into existence to please man, but to worship and glorify God. Paul also says in Galatians, do I seek to please men? For if I yet please man, I should not be the servant of Christ. In other words, if you're a man pleaser, you're not a servant of Christ. And if you're the servant of Christ, you will take forth the gospel message, even though it doesn't please men. So arm yourself. Arm yourself. There's a, there's a, there's a, a branch of theology what we call apologetics. Get into apologetics. Learn to defend the faith. But do so for the express purpose of making the name of God proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That's the purpose for apologetics. It's to strengthen you to preach the gospel. It's not to fight people. I know. As one that was in apologetics for a long time, I know that's what most people think that apologetics is. It's just to bash people. But that's not it. Not to beat down your brother or sister. If you think that's apologetics, then you're sadly mistaken. It's to equip the church to better defend the faith. I've said this as long as I've ever done apologetics. It's, the, apologetics is for the church. It's to build you up, to make you stronger, so you'll go forth with the gospel message. So equip yourself for this battle. If you need resources, I have plenty. But you were brought into existence to fight this fight, brother. So arm yourself. And go out into the world for His glory and for the advancement of His kingdom. Because He has raised you up that your, His name might be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Amen.